I want to welcome you all here this morning, and I ask that you would stand for the reading of God's Word. We are going to uh, be reading and preaching this morning from 1 Timothy 2, verses 8 through 15. I have had people ask if for the sake of following along which translation I'm using. I will almost always be using the ESV. So if that helps you, then you uh, can bring one of those. So 1 Timothy 2, 8 through 15. And let's remember these are the words of God. I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise also the women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, rather she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing, if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. And may God bless the reading of his word. You can be seated. I was going to give a little bit of a housekeeping reminder about what we are doing here, Family Integrated Worship, Covenant Renewal Worship. Uh, I think in the interest of time, and as a spoiler for next week, we will hold that off because we're a bit, uh, a bit behind with, with potluck. So we will explain some more of that next week, why we have things laid out the way we do. So let's move right into our text. We all know about hard sayings of the Bible, and this can mean at least two different things. Uh, we can have hard sayings in that something is hard to understand. What does this text mean? It could go this way, it could go that way. Uh, there's, you know, there's varied interpretation in the history of the church. Uh, and so there's hard texts in the sense that this is really hard to understand. There's also hard sayings in the Bible that are hard to accept. They're not hard to understand. It's pretty straightforward what the text is saying. But because they cut against the grain of the times we are living in, they are hard to follow. And, lucky for us, this morning, this passage has some of each. So, in the hard-to-understand passages, we have a rule in biblical interpretation. It's called the analogy of faith, which is quite simple. It just means if there is a hard-to-understand text, you understand that text in light of more clear ones. Okay, so today we're going to talk about uh, women being saved through childbearing. Now... Could that mean that women are justified by childbirth instead of by faith? Well, based on the grammar alone, one maybe could think that, but what we know from the rest of the Bible, we know that interpretation is impossible. Right? No one is saved apart from grace through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we understand difficult texts in light of straightforward ones. That rule is called the analogy of faith. In hard-to-accept passages, however... We need to think very carefully through the authority issues in our mind. What authority are we appealing to? Where does authority ultimately rest? And we want to be rock-ribbed in our commitment to both the authority and the sufficiency of Scripture. This means that Scripture is our North Star on everything. Okay? Scripture is the inerrant Word of God, and it's also the sufficient Word of God. And the sufficiency of the Bible is absolutely uh, one of the key dividing lines in the evangelical church today. Some people define the sufficiency of the Bible so narrowly that it's hardly sufficient for anything. Uh, and yet what we want to say is that the Bible is sufficient for everything that it speaks to, and it speaks to absolutely everything. Okay? The Bible is sufficient for all of life, not for some narrow little sliver called your Christian life. The Bible is sufficient for all of life, everything, no exceptions. We mean it when we talk about the sufficiency of the Bible. And when we run into difficult texts, we, are, we sometimes find ourselves in this odd position where sometimes we can actually trust theological liberals more than we can trust our fellow evangelicals. Well, what do I mean by that? Evangelicals feel a need to obey the text that they're reading, right? If we believe this is the Word of God, we feel compelled to obey it. That's one of the, the parts about being an evangelical Christian. So we feel this compulsion to obey. Liberals feel no such compulsion. Right? So they can look at difficult texts in the Bible and say, see what the Bible says about gender or sexuality? Ha 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 ha. Right? Uh, whereas evangelicals 
feel compelled to obey. Uh, and the downside of that means uh, for us to cross the bar of obedience, sometimes our interpretations get quite creative. So we can still say that we're obeying, right? Uh, and so we take a very minimalistic or a very weak view of uh, the interpretation of the text because we feel like we need to obey it. Obedience is hard, so let's make sure we're obeying the bare minimum. Liberals have no such problems, and so they'll sometimes face a text straight on with the courage uh, that we sometimes don't have as evangelicals. <clears throat> and we'll maybe just keep that in mind for how we deal with some of these difficult sayings that are in today's text. Uh, one method that is frequently employed, uh, which is a faulty one, is what's called a trajectory hermeneutic, which means to say uh, that the Bible sends us on a path. The Bible's not, it doesn't get us there, but it's an improvement over what was in the ancient world. So uh, what the Bible says on this issue isn't sufficient, but it sends us on the right pathway, and we just need to extrapolate that path that Paul sends us on uh, and, and carry it on to our own way. And so this is how this frequently looks. When the Bible talks about something uh, that runs contrary to the grain today, here's what we often do. Is we say, well, we know what the standard is, right? The standard is whatever we're used to. Who defines right and wrong? Well, our culture does. So here's the standard of our culture. Here's where the Old Testament was. Uh, the New Testament got us closer. And, and even apologists sometimes use this technique, right? Well, so, but the Bible is so much more progressive than the Quran. So clearly it's leading us to the right path. The problem with this is, what is the standard of truth in that scenario? Our culture. Our culture becomes the standard, and we justify the Bible because it gets us closer to what we're used to than other sacred books do. But if we take that approach, we're actually not respecting the authority of the Bible at all. What we're doing is saying the Bible is good because it gets us closer to what we're used to than other sacred books or other ancient thoughts. Uh, and so again, we, we must reject root and branch this idea of a trajectory hermeneutic that our culture defines right and wrong, and the Bible is inspired to the degree that it helps get us to where we want to end up, to what we're used to. <clears throat> and we do that even when we think of apologetics, right? How often do we treat apologetics or evangelism as though the unbeliever is in charge of deciding what's right and wrong, right? We'll take all the evidence, we'll... We'll, we'll try to make a case, and then they have to make the final determination. Uh, and so even our apologetics frequently tries to reason to God, whereas if we believe in the sufficiency of the Bible, God is our starting point. Nothing makes sense if we don't start with God. So the starting point must always be God and His Word, whether it's an apologetics uh, or a doctrine. And when we run into these discrepancies, again, we have to think through what kind of assumptions am I bringing to the text because of where and when I live. Right? How much do we do that? We're used to a certain thing, and, and so there's this whole joke, well, how do you know your position is correct? Well, it's the one I grew up with. Right? That, that's, that's how I know my position is correct. My dad told me that when I was seven. Obviously, it's right. right? Well, could that be wrong? Possibly. What I want to do this morning, as we work through this text, is show not just that there is a truth here to be swallowed hard with as much joy as eating gravel off your driveway, but rather to see the story. We need to tell better stories as evangelical Christians. Right? We, we frequently appeal to truth, and that is good, but the reason we, we are losing influence is because those who are opposed to the gospel tell a more compelling story than we do. Uh, and we actually have the most compelling story, and so we need to get into our own story and learn how to tell a better, more interesting story. And our goal is to have no problem texts in the Bible where the text leads us, that is where we want to go. Uh, and we find, as we get deeper into the text, that we don't just find truths to be swallowed hard, but we find goodness, truth, and beauty. Okay? What the Bible says is true, good, and beautiful, and we shouldn't just stop at the truth part, we also need to see the goodness and the beauty. Because when we see the goodness and the beauty, it actually energizes our obedience. Our obedience seems more obvious, it's more joy-filled, uh, it's, it's a happier situation. Uh, and so that will be our task this morning, is to see the goodness and the beauty in addition to the truth of God's design uh, for men and women. In verse 8 it says that, I desire that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. And Paul is giving instructions for Timothy and the church in Ephesus. But because he's an apostle, he's also thinking of the other churches. He's not just thinking of one church 
He's thinking of the church located all throughout uh, the empire. And this is why he talks about it in every place. Uh, and there's other references to raised hands in, in the Bible during prayer. We see it in Psalm 63, we see it in Psalm 141. Uh, and in Psalm 141, actually, the raised hands is connected to incense burning. Okay? And, and incense is frequently a picture of prayer. In the Old Testament, in the temple, you have the incense burning by the curtain that separated the Holy of Holies. And what a great representation of our prayers. Right? It wafts through the curtains where no man can go. The, the incense wafts through there into the Holy of Holies, just like our prayers penetrate the barrier that's between us and God. And so incense and raised hands are connected because they're a fitting picture for prayer reaching from us out to God. And we saw earlier in this chapter that prayer is often on behalf of other people. It's interceding for other people. And so it's fitting that when we are in a posture of prayer, we are free from anger and quarreling as the verse instructs us. And the Bible doesn't give us a strict set of rules about the correct posture for praying. We don't have chapter and verse for that. But what we are accustomed to is closing our eyes and folding our hands. Uh, and I would suggest that this is entirely appropriate. It helps us to be free from distractions and to focus on God to whom we are praying. And raising hands is also a posture that we're familiar with. And traditionally in the benediction, which we do here at the end of the service, uh, the minister will raise his hands. The benediction isn't really a prayer, it's more of a blessing from God's word uh, as we go out. But it's frequent that the minister will raise his hands, and that's also appropriate if we're thinking about the, this intercessory aspect from God to us. Moving on to verse 9 through 10, it says that likewise also the women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. And so previously in verse 8, we were concerned specifically with the men and their posture for praying, and the sin that they are specifically warned about is anger and quarreling. And now Paul shifts his attention from the men to the women, and gives specific instructions to them. And this isn't uncommon. It's actually quite frequent in the New Testament uh, for, for an apostle to take the men aside and give them male-oriented instructions, and then take the ladies aside and give them female-oriented instructions. Uh, and so this shouldn't surprise us that we're about to see it here as well. Men and women, of course, we know from Genesis 1, are full equals before God. But we are designed for different things. And as such, we tend to excel at different things, but we also tend to be plagued with different besetting sins. And it's because of our distinct design features that we receive different instructions. It's because of the types of sins that we tend to be inclined towards or to struggle with, and the different types of gifts that we have that we are to use appropriately. So, if men are supposed to take a posture of responsibility in prayer for others, and fight against the sin of quarreling and anger, now the women are to take a posture of modesty and self-control and fight against the sin of vanity. And while it is true that women can and do struggle with anger, and men can and do struggle with vanity, there's also a reason that these sins are dealt with according to male and female in this text. So the positive side of Paul's instruction is that the women adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control. And the goal here is good works. Because this is proper for women who profess godliness. This is the ideal standard, and it puts the rest of this passage into its proper context. But whenever we have instruction, there's a positive side, but there's a negative side, right? Do this, don't do this. The negative side of the instruction here is that the women not adorn themselves with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire. But notice closely, he doesn't say that women shouldn't have braided hair or that they should not wear jewelry. He says that they shouldn't adorn themselves this way. And adorning has to do with the way we present ourselves to the world. It's the statement we're making about who we are. The most obvious things about us, uh, that is what we are adorning ourselves with. So the braids, the gold, and the pearls are actually not the issue. The way the woman presents herself to the world is the issue. These things, the braids, the gold, the pearls, are only an issue to the degree uh, that they are putting a woman's vanity on display. And so they can be perfectly lawful if used in a way that is putting dignity and godliness on display. And maybe an analogy that we could think of is the instruction we have in Ephesians 5 to not get drunk with wine. Now, does that passage say there is no lawful use for wine whatsoever? 
No, it does not say that. It says don't get drunk with wine. Okay? This isn't saying, ladies, you're not allowed to braid your hair. This is saying don't adorn yourselves with braided hair or with showy jewelry. Okay? We are not to get drunk, and wine is a problem to the degree that it is being used for an unlawful purpose. But that doesn't mean that there's no lawful purpose for it elsewhere. The Apostle is saying that the adorning should be those things which are fitting for a Christian woman, which are modesty, self-control, and good looks. Good looks. Good works. <laughs> You'll forgive me. Let the reader understand. <laughs> the parallel passage here is in 1 Peter 3, verses 3 and 4, which says essentially the same thing, but it adds a little bit more information. It says, Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry, or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. So in addition to modesty, self-control, and good works, uniquely feminine virtues which the apostles commend are an imperishable beauty and a gentle and quiet spirit. So, of course, men do not have a pass on being immodest. Immodesty is as much a sin for men as it is for women, but the instructions for modesty in the Bible are generally geared towards ladies. And some have misunderstood this as suggesting that this makes women out to be objects or commodities. But any serious thought will actually lead us in the exact opposite direction. And you don't take protective measures with something that's common. Okay? If you walk into my shop, you don't see my hammer collection up on display in the china cabinet, right? Because they're just hammers. There's nothing special about it. What might you put behind glass? Maybe your grandma's antique china set, right? There's value there, there's beauty, there's dignity. And so that's what gets put on display, okay? You, you protect things that are valuable. It is modesty, or it is immodesty rather, that sets women out to be a commodity. Immodesty is communicating to the world that something is available at a low price. And a woman is giving away her dignity with immodesty. And sometimes it's joked about girls who are very obvious in their immodesty and, and communicating clearly that they are promiscuous. Sometimes the joke is told that these girls have daddy issues. In far too many places, that actually isn't a joke. Okay? If girls don't learn to get healthy masculine attention and learn what their dignity and their value is, they're going to keep testing the market at a lower and lower and lower price until there's a taker. Okay? It's devastating. That's crushing. That's what immodesty does. Immodesty puts you on the market at a low price. Modesty, on the other hand, is a fence that sits around something that is glorious and valuable. And there are very few things in creation that are more glorious and more valuable to God than godly femininity. And in fact, we could make the case that feminine glory is in many respects the ultimate crowning jewel of all creation. In 1 Corinthians 11.7, it says that where man is the glory of God, so woman is the glory of man. Okay, so God seals his creation by putting a man in the garden as his crowning act. And then what does he do? He gives that man a woman as his crown. Okay, this is the finishing touch. This is the, the apex of creation in a very real sense. is feminine glory that God adorns the garden with. Feminine glory is just that. It is glorious. And this glory is under attack in our day from many different angles. Two of the most obvious ones are pornography and feminism. And these two have a complicated relationship with each other. Some feminists correctly see that pornography is degrading, but others see it as empowering. But feminism and pornography alike share a contempt for God's design, for the distinction of male and female, masculinity and femininity. Pornography and sexualization tell the lie that women view sex much the same way that men do, which is a lie. Pornography takes the beauty of a woman and puts it for sale at the cheapest possible price, saying that essentially, other than the way our bodies look, men and women are basically oriented the same way. And again, that is a, that's just a lie. It's patently false. Feminism is more straightforward in its corrosive power. Uh, it makes almost a, a, a head-on attack by trying to mar the distinction between male and female. 
saying, and it's ironic, right? Because essentially the message is that a woman's value comes more and more as she is able to function more and more as a man. But again, what's the standard then? Well, masculinity is obviously the apex, and women are equal to the degree that they can function like a man. But these are both telling a lie, and both ideas are to be rejected root and branch. And our job as Christians isn't just to recover the bare minimum of what the Bible teaches on this subject. For, for this to be compelling, we have to understand the beauty behind it. We have to understand the story that God is telling. Because we actually have a much more interesting story. It's the secularists who have a boring story. They're the ones trying to erase all difference in creation. Okay? Uh, and people can see this from far away. Um, this isn't in my notes, so this is scary. But um, Abram Piper, you probably heard me speak of, a brilliant man. He was the Prime Minister of the Netherlands at about the turn of the 1800s to the 1900s. Uh, and before his Prime Minister, he, he founded a seminary. He was a pastor, he was a theologian. And he came to Princeton Theological Seminary in America. Uh, and he gave an address. And he was talking about the ideas that were popular on the American continent. And so this is in the year 1898. He looked at the ideas on the American continent and said, you know what? You follow these ideas out for about another hundred years, you will not be able to tell the difference between men and women. All distinctions will be flattened. Okay? Abram Kuyper saw that a hundred years ago. And he was correct. We didn't get here by mistake. But think, in a world without difference, without sun and moon, without day and night, birds and fish, work and leisure, sweet and sour, or masculinity and femininity, how interesting would that creation be? And the reality of this is so plain to see and self-evident. right? And reality, we have to think about this, reality is what God says it is. God is the basis for all reality. So God didn't come walking across the universe and he saw all these pre-existing laws already functioning, right? The law of gravity was there and he looked at that and after he dropped a, a hammer a few times he said, okay, I guess this is a universe with gravity in it. Right? That's not how it works. God is behind and under and over and in all laws of reality. These are not prepackaged things that exist independent of him. So all natural laws are natural laws because God established them and is upholding them right now at this very moment. But, let's just set that aside just for a minute, just for a thought experiment. Let's pretend, and this is impossible, but let's pretend for a minute that we could remove God and remove His revelation from reality. And so let's try to get into Darwin's worldview, or let's try to get into Hegel's worldview, and just think about this cold, mechanistic world. There's no God. All there is is these cold laws of nature. There's no God, no morality, no beauty, no goodness, only cold laws at play. And so please listen carefully. I'm not advocating this. I'm saying let's do this for a thought experiment. A single man would be able to populate an entire village, biologically speaking. He can produce hundreds of children, biologically, in a year, right? And Genghis Khan is reported to have sired 1,800 children. Whether that's true or not, I don't know. But it is biologically possible for a man to do this. And a woman cannot do the same. She can produce, at most, one child a year. And the reproductive cost to men and women is not equal either. After one encounter, a man can happily go whistling down the street and get onto other stuff, whereas a woman, after one encounter, may find herself a single mother without any options. If we look at this strictly from a cold biological economic standpoint, we could say that there is a surplus supply of men, and the laws of economics would dictate that eggs are expensive and sperm is cheap. The market said so. In other words, if Darwin is right, and our primary goal on this planet is to merely keep reproducing ourselves, to keep reproducing the human race, men are expendable and women are not. And so there's good reason, just from the laws of reality, take God out of it, and again we can, follow me, just from the laws of nature, there is good reason for it to be the man who goes to the door when there's a scary sound at night. Okay? It makes sense that the boats landing at Normandy were filled with men, and men only. That makes sense. Men are expendable. Right? Biologically, a society could recover from a, a large loss of men, but it cannot do the same with a large loss of women. 
So it does make sense that we are willing to take risks with men that we should not be willing to take with women. And again, let's get out of Darwin's world and back into the real world with what God says about this. This actually makes sense to us as Christians because reality is rooted in God's design. And scripture tells us why it is this way, as we will see later. But the fact is we cannot escape reality. And increasingly, as our society loses its mind, as it rejects God, as it rejects God's revelation, we find ourselves not only in a war with God, but in a war with just basic reality. And, as we eventually find out, reality is not optional. Okay? At least not in the long run. Reality is not optional. Okay? It's mandatory. If you're living in God's universe, you have to deal with reality. Right? So we've all probably seen this thing where you can... Uh, order these shirts that celebrate all the genders, but then when you click on your order, you have to order it with a male fit or a female fit, right? You cannot escape this, okay? A woman doesn't want to take her husband's last name because she rejects patriarchy, opting instead to keep her father's name, right? Reality is not optional. We live in God's universe. You can't avoid this, okay? Uh, maybe the most absurd of all is think... Uh, the sexual revolution that has been going on in our culture for 50 or 60 years, uh, feminists at first were, were eager to embrace this. But who would have guessed when this whole project started in the 1960s that the end result would be that Bruce Jenner would win female or woman of the year, right? What's the end result of feminism? Men are even better at being women than women are. It, that's the end result. This thing is absurd. It's absurd. Why not pick a real woman? And it's becoming more and more obvious in our culture that a refusal to bend the knee to God lands us in a war against all reality. And in the final end, this is inescapable. This, this final uh, choice is between Christ and chaos. There is no mediating position. It will be Christ or it will be chaos. And when we do these little projects trying to recreate reality in our image, God sits in the heavens and laughs at us and turns our joke on us. And so the main takeaway here from verses 9 and 10 is that the way a woman presents herself to the world should communicate that she understands her God-given dignity, her worth, and her feminine glory that God has been pleased to put in creation. And modesty is God's way of guarding something that He has placed tremendous value on. In verse 11 and 12, it says, let a, woman, let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. As so we've already seen that men and women are made for different things, and we'll see more of what the rationale is for that as we move through this passage. But the fact is that men and women are designed for different things, but that doesn't mean one is better than another. So go back. What's more valuable between my hammer or the teacup? Well, that depends. Am I trying to drive an Ardux nail into a board, or am I trying to host people? Which is more valuable? Bad question. Bad question. What's better, a man or a woman? Bad question. What is this thing designed for? What are we trying to accomplish? Each has their own strengths and weaknesses. And that's good. That is designed that way. When we make the mistake of reducing male and female to mere biology, we are missing the point. Okay? Biological features are there as a secondary thing to the, the real item behind it. Masculinity and femininity are much more basic and foundational than male or female are, because male and female are just strictly observable things. Masculinity and femininity are not observable in that sense, they are behind it all. And so think of it like a wedding ring, right? I'm wearing a wedding ring. You could weigh this ring. You could test its thickness. You could measure it. You can see what it's made of. There's many observable things about this wedding ring, right? Empirically, you could tell me many true things about it. Here's what you can't do. You can't tell me what it's for, just based on observation. You cannot tell me what this ring is for, just based on scientific observation. But what it's for is actually more important than the stuff it's made of. Okay? Because my marriage is much more valuable than this ring is. The ring is a symbol that points us to a greater reality. And my marriage is the kind of thing you can't put on a scale. Okay? You can't say what color it is, or, uh, or those kinds of things. It's not observable in a scientific or empirical sense, but it's more real 
in a very real sense, it's much more real than the symbol. Okay? And masculinity and femininity, you can't put on a scale. They don't have a color. They don't have a smell. But it's more real than the observable biological features on a man's body or on a woman's body. It's more real than that. It's more foundational. Uh, it's more basic than that. The fact that gender roles exist in God's universe isn't something based on biology or on observable data. Gender exists symbolically to tell a story about reality. Male and female, masculinity and femininity, exist to tell a story about Christ and the church, about God's purposes with his creation. And we know from the plant world and the tree world, God does not need two distinct genders for reproduction to happen. Okay? Many plants are the organs for both genders exist on one plant. God did not, there's no compulsion in God to make male and female in the human world for reproductive purposes alone. There's no need. He's done it uh, with one gender or with one indistinct thing in other realms. Cells can divide themselves in half. Right? Uh, so we don't need male and female, strictly speaking. We have two genders in the human world, so not for the bare fact of reproduction, but to tell a story about God. And no part in the story of God is unimportant. Each part serves its purpose. So if you are born male, your obedience will be oriented a certain way because you are symbolically telling the story of who Christ is. And if you are born female, your obedience will be oriented in a different direction because you are symbolically telling a story about who Christ's church is, his bride. And this provides and explains why behind uh, these instructions for gender, these aren't just arbitrary rules, but these are instructions that get right to the heart of God. These are not arbitrary rules, they are important parts of a story which must be told correctly or else we're going to lose the plot. Okay? And, spoiler alert, our society has absolutely lost the plot. We have completely lost the story. We don't even, right, even, even the science behind gender is starting to be questioned. Well, <laughs> we've lost the plot. And we as Christians, as all people, need to recover the plot. We need to get back in the story so we understand that these aren't just, well, here's the rules for men, and here's the rules for women, and who does, you're missing it. What's the point? Why does God want male and female? Why does God delight in male and female, in masculinity and femininity? So the woman, taking a quiet and submissive spirit, does so because the church is to submit to Christ. Male headship in the church exists not because men are superior, or better educated, or more eloquent speakers, but because man was put in the garden to take dominion, just like Christ does. Have you ever noticed the similarities between the dominion mandate, right? In the garden, God puts man and woman in the garden, tells them to take dominion, right? Be fruitful and multiply and fill the whole earth. Have you ever noticed how closely that echoes the Great Commission, right? Go make disciples of all the nations, disciple them. It's, it's the same kind of mandate, go out and fill the earth with the knowledge of the Lord. And so it makes sense that the first parents in the garden mirror Christ in the church in the Great Commission. The woman is created to be a helper for the man in his dominion mandate. And the dominion of the earth to paint a real picture and to give real life role play for us to understand how the church is created to serve Christ as his kingdom takes dominion over the earth. A woman and her gentle and quiet spirit doesn't do this because there's anything deficient in her, but because her femininity and her gender are existing to tell a story of how Christ follows, or how the church follows Christ in the first place. And a man teaching and exercising authority in the church isn't due to his eloquence or to his superiority. It is due to the fact that his gender and his masculinity are existing to tell a story about who Christ is. And so for a woman to exercise authority over a man, either in marriage or in the church, or more broadly through creation, is to miss the plot. Male and female are no more interchangeable than Christ and the church. So is it appropriate for the church to say that she's going to exercise authority over Christ? Does that make any sense? No. She's lowering her dignity when the church takes that role. She's not uh, elevating her dignity, right? We, we are at our maximum dignity when we are doing the kinds of things that we are designed to do. A crescent wrench is much better as a wrench than it is as a hammer, 
Okay, I'm not elevating the dignity of my crescent wrench when I use it as a hitch pin or a hammer. But it's used as a wrench. That's what it's designed for. Use it like it's designed for. Okay? Uh, and so when we get caught up in these little things, well, who takes out the garbage, who, who does the checkbook, and so forth, uh, I think we're missing it, right? Uh, a biblical view of male and female goes much deeper than that, and it's also much more simple than that. Uh, and so if, if you're wondering, okay, as a man, what do I do in this situation? As a woman, what do I do in this situation? It's actually quite simple. Look at the thing that you are symbolizing. So for women, you are symbolizing the church. Now, is the church a dish rag that just gets set on the side? Absolutely not. The church is integral to the purposes of God. Okay? So when you're wondering, how do I act in this situation? Should I just be a dish rag? Well, no, the church isn't a dish rag. Okay? Not at all. Well, should I nag my husband? Well, what does Christ think of a nagging church? Is he pleased with that? Well, no, he's not. Okay? Look to what you are representing. And likewise for men. Uh, is Christ a heavy-handed authoritarian? Absolutely not. Okay? Does he always listen to his bride? No, he lets the apostles talk, and he listens carefully because he loves them, and he considers what they say, and then he does the right thing, whether that's in full agreement or not. Okay? And so even the servant leadership thing can be pushed too far, where it essentially says that a man's really leaving when he does whatever his wife tells him to. Okay? Take it into consideration. Christ takes his bride into consideration. But servant leadership doesn't mean just leaving with whatever your wife says. Sometimes it requires actual leadership. And this is a dance. Okay? Uh, this is a dance, and it's beautiful because it pictures Christ and the church. And then we go in verses 13 and 14, right to the rationale behind the whole thing. For Adam was formed first, and then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived, and became a transgressor. And so the reason for the gender-specific instructions are laid out here. Male and female are what they are because of creation. Paul appeals to creation and not to the, the culture and not to the circumstance to make his point. Many egalitarians will say that these instructions are cultural because the women weren't well-educated or because the culture of the day would not be accepting of uh, women having authority over men. But this actually isn't too hard to disprove. Most of the men in the Ephesian church weren't well-trained either. And if the point of difference was education, Paul would have made his appeal to the difference in education and not to the difference in gender. Further. We know that there were, in fact, well-educated, high-horsepower women in the church in Ephesus. This is where Priscilla and Aquila were. And we know that Priscilla was enough of a high-horsepower, godly, intelligent, well-trained woman that she was able to privately instruct and help and counsel Paul. So we know there were educated women there. So the presence of educated women and uneducated men in the church means that the appeal to male-female instructions really mean that male and female is the issue here. This isn't a second-hand or oblique reference to education level, but a direct reference to the importance of masculinity and femininity, and why God put both into his creation in the first place. And we also know that these instructions can't be a concession to the culture. How many times did Jesus go against what was expected of him to, do, to, to prove the right point? Right? Jesus never caved to the culture if the truth of God was at stake. He just pushed on doing what he did, uh, and this got him in trouble many times. So we know Christ and the apostles are willing to go against the grain when the truth of God is at stake. And yet Jesus appoints a body of men to lead his church. And the New Testament qualifications for elders, which we're going to see later in the book, are clearly masculine and male-focused. And this, again, demonstrates the pattern of masculine hitching. It's something uh, that they practiced even among those people who were happy to break the custom when necessary. So it's obvious that both in Christ's time and today, there are many gifted, educated, well-spoken women in the church, and none of this is an insult to them, nor is it a prohibition against using their gifts. Rather, it's a template to show how these gifts are to operate in a way that will glorify God. Okay? And so again, the focus shouldn't be on what women can't do. The focus is on how do I exercise my gifts in a way that most glorifies God. Okay? And there's no prohibition here on women getting a theological education or teaching, or public speaking. There are many places where they can and should do those things. But the principle here that says it's against creation is women exercising authority over men. That's the point. Lastly, in verse 13, we have a picture of why things are as they ought to be. Okay, so before the fall, God created man to take dominion and to wrestle food out of the ground. 
and a woman to help him in his task and to be the mother of all the living. And the meaning of this is that our first parents served as types or examples or symbols of Christ in the church. Men are designed specifically to build, fight, protect, and lead. Women are uniquely designed to support, create, nurture, and beautify. And verse 14 gives the same teaching, but from the negative aspect, from a post-fall perspective. And notice how the fall reverses the God's design and creation almost perfectly. So here's the design. Here's God, and He creates a man as the crowning glory of His creation, and then He gives him a woman as His crown to support and help him. Together, they exercise dominion over the, the, the garden, over the creation, and drive out the serpent. Okay? What happened at the fall? The serpent claims dominion over the whole thing, over creation. He goes to the woman, who takes authority over the man, and pushed God out of the picture. It's an exact reversal, an exact reversal of what was designed. This is how it came apart. Think of it like a zipper. God zipped it up this way, and our parents unzipped it in the exact opposite direction. The man, had he been doing what he should have, should have protected his wife. The woman should not have made the executive decision that she did in the garden. And after the transgression, if Adam was acting like the man he was supposed to be, he would have said, God, here's this thing that we did. I'm sorry. Don't take her. Take me. I'm responsible here. Right? And think about it. A navy ship, if you have some ensign who's running the ship while the captain's asleep, and the ensign runs into the rocks and smashes the ship, He's at fault, but who's responsible? The captain. Okay? The ensign's fault, the captain's responsibility. This is how it should have worked in the garden. But Adam was a coward. Not only did he not step in the way and take the price and, and give his life in exchange for his wife's life, he starts to blame her and he blames God and he blames everyone else. He should have taken responsibility. And if you want a, a good definition of biblical masculinity, it's this. Biblical masculinity is the glad assumption of sacrificial responsibility. Okay? The glad assumption of sacrificial responsibility. And that's exactly what Christ is our second Adam does. Adam failed multiple times at this. And it seems, from Genesis 3.6, that the man was close by as Eve was being deceived by the serpent. It was Adam who got the instructions directly from God. And so he knew what the rules were. He knew the deception that was unfolding. Eve was being deceived, but Adam's sin was actually far worse, because he was a coward despite knowing the truth. Despite not being deceived, he stood by as a coward and let it happen, rather than protecting his wife, and then taking the blame for her, taking the blow in her place. So in a very real way, the fall itself is a direct result of getting gender norms wrong. Adam and Eve forgot very early on what men were for and what women were for. Because our parents fell the way they did, it should be no surprise that we see the same kinds of patterns uh, that we are prone to follow. Right? And think, even today, what are some of the besetting sins of men? Laziness, not paying attention to our families. And then, when problem is created because we've done those things, what do we do? Well, we get into all kinds of a bluster and we start blaming, right? We start blame shifting. Just like Adam. We're lazy. Okay? And men, we need to be better than this. We need to look to Christ and not to Adam as we represent this. And some of the besetting sins of women continue to be being deceived and then grasping and usurping a man's authority. And this probably uh, can be seen in a pretty typical way. Go to your typical Christian bookstore, and there's lots of good stuff there, but there also tends to be lots of junk. And just ask yourself, how much of that junk is uniquely marketed to the emotional appeal of women? Lots of it. Right? Lots of it. And this makes sense. Because the curse that God announces on His creation, in Genesis 3.16, He says, Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. So you have a woman grasping and a man being an authoritarian. Okay? This is the curse. This is not the way God designed it to work. And then lastly, verse 15, Yet she will be saved through childbearing, bearing, if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. 
And so again, we cannot understand this as an alternate path to being justified, right? You know, some kind of slick marketing campaign. Well, for those of you who don't want to be justified by grace through faith, you're going to really like this new offer that we have. Uh, this is the second track of salvation where you can be saved through childbearing. Okay? It doesn't work that way. This isn't a, an alternate path to the gospel. We're not Mormons. Okay? Women aren't justified because they have babies. Um, rather, what we have here is that we have to uh, understand a text like this in two senses. Okay? So despite the fact that it was Eve, the woman who was deceived, God is pleased to undo the curse through another woman, through Eve's daughter, Mary. Uh, and in a very real sense, Mary undoes what Eve does, does in a similar fashion to how the second Adam, Jesus Christ, undid the curse of the first Adam. So a woman bearing a child is involved here. Mary bringing the seed of the woman to life. Uh, and so salvation is possible because of that. Another way to look at this is that salvation is more than uh, just one thing, okay? Uh, the Bible talks about salvation. You were saved, you are being saved, and you will be saved. There's a past tense, a present tense, and a future tense, right? So there's the moment of conversion where you're justified. God says you're holy, you're blameless, you're in my kingdom. Then there's this lifelong process of sanctification, of working that salvation out, putting sin to death, growing in holiness. Uh, and then finally, the last step is glorification, when we go on to our reward, right? When we go to heaven. And sin can't touch us anymore. That's glorification. Okay? And the whole package is called salvation, including the sanctification. Okay? So, in the normal course of life, for most people, most women's primary vocation in ministry will be those related to her motherhood. Okay? You get a baby, and instantly you start an 18-year Bible college. Is there a higher calling than that? Okay? Is there a higher calling than that? 18 years of teaching this little baby the gospel of Jesus Christ. There is no higher calling. And her primary vocation in ministry will be related to that. It doesn't mean there's not others, but this means that this is the primary one. And so this is the arena in which she will work out her salvation. So she is not justified by childbirth, but she will grow in her Christian life and be sanctified as she carries out her role as a mother as she nurtures and instructs her children in the Christian life. So, you could paraphrase this in light of other passages in the Bible, like this. Yet she will be sanctified in her childbearing if she continues in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Okay? And so, in, in a real way, this is equally applicable, or can be equally applicable, for women who aren't married, or can't have children, or don't have children in the home anymore. There's plenty of opportunities to nurture, to mentor, uh, and to help, and encourage, and pray for, and, and give rise to the hospital, make meals for other women to help each other out. So you don't have to have your own physical children for this feminine calling to still be on your life. Now, if you've been paying close attention, you'll notice that what we've been looking at here isn't exactly culturally popular. Okay? The message of the sexual revolution has been going my entire life and longer. And it has been making our culture sick with sex and with confusion for about the last 60 years or so. And so one question may be, well, why push back on that? This thing is such a juggernaut, it's so out of control, the horse is out of the barn. Matt, why would you pick a fight with something like that? Okay, and apart from it just being the next thing in the test, and if we want to preach expository, we have to go through the text, and we don't want hard passages, so we don't skip stuff. If it's in the text, God wants us to know it. So that's one reason why we do this. Right? But the criticism will come back, well, this, you, you can't win this fight, so why fight it? Uh, you're just going to have a bad testimony if you talk about this kind of stuff. But in Titus, which is another book where Paul is teaching a young pastor, he gives very similar instructions. And he says that we should live in a way so that the word of God may not be reviled. And notice the contrast. Many today clamor to say we shouldn't talk about this stuff in the church because we will embarrass ourselves and we'll revile the word of God and we'll have a poor testimony. In the book of Titus, when Paul is stressing male and female distinctions, he's saying exactly emphasize this, stress this, in order that the word of God may not be reviled. Okay? You're blaspheming the word of God if you don't lean into this. Okay? God says we need to live these things out so that his word will not be reviled. And we cannot show the world a glorious and healthy alternative to the dead end cul-de-sac that it's on if we start negotiating down the word of God with them. We can't keep 
cutting the stew in half and then hope that the world will be won over to the rich aroma of our boiling water. It doesn't work that way. Okay? Don't cut the stew in half. Go all in. If this is what God teaches, we own it. And so it's my sincere hope that we can see from this passage and other passages in Scripture that point to male and female, masculine and feminine, that these are not just stereotypes for us to follow without thinking, or worse, to mock as being indifferent. Masculinity and femininity are close to the heart of God because He designed them for the purpose of telling a story about all reality. The drama of Christ and His Bride is the controlling story for everything that has ever happened in this world. Okay? And so this isn't an unpleasant truth to just be swallowed hard, but we don't have to like it. Rather, this is a glorious reenactment. This is something that is true, it is good, and it is beautiful when it is lived out well. With that, I will close in prayer. Father God, thank you for each one here. Lord, thank you for your wisdom and your glory in making male and female, masculine and feminine. Lord, forgive us when we try to think that one is better than the other, or when we mock one or the other. Lord, both are precious to you, both are beautiful. And both are telling a story about your gospel, about your son that you sent to earth to undo the curse of the first Adam, and about the bride that you paid with your own life. Lord, you gave your life for the church, for the bride, and I pray that each man here would be willing to do the same for the women in our lives, that they would feel dignified and honored. Lord, and I pray that for the women who are living in a culture with so many confusing messages, that they would see where their dignity, where their value rests. Lord, that femininity is the crowning jewel. It's the last finishing touch that you've put on all creation because it is beautiful. It is dignified. Lord, help us to live this out in our marriages. Help us to live this out as we train little boys and little girls what they're for. Help us to live this out to the watching world so that they can be reacquainted with reality, with why you have done the things you have done, and that they can see that this is a compelling story and that it is good and beautiful. Lord, I pray that you would use our marriages and our church life and the way we respect one another's unique differences to draw people back to you out of a longing and a sense of loss for what the world has taken from them. Lord, help us all to see that this is beautiful. This isn't just hard truth to be swallowed, but this is a beautiful story that we can get into. Lord, help us to not lose the plot. Help us to see it. Help us to live it. And help us to encourage each other on, as male and female, for the building of your kingdom. Amen.